This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, the little show with big ideas. Now, whether you're new to the show or a longtime listener, we're glad to have you with us. Be sure to tell your friends about us. In every show, we strive to bring you interesting topics and guests from the rewarding hobby of model railroading. Later on, well, it's the summer silly season, so we're going to have a fun chat with Mark Koenig of the Wilmington, North Carolina Railroad Museum about a recent attempt at a new world record for the world's longest model train. But first, Trevor's dialing 4-4, the country code for the UK, as he speaks with Tag Gorton, a British magazine editor, about ways you may be able to broaden your modeling horizons in the future without those hefty postage fees. While many modelers work indoors, there's a growing number of us taking our hobby outside. And why not? The combination of a beautiful day in the garden with the sight and sound of trains is an unbeatable way to spend a summer's day. Garden rail enthusiasts turn to several publications for information, but one of the most respected in the world has to be Garden Rail magazine. Published in the United Kingdom and billing itself as the only monthly magazine for outdoor scales, in April of this year, Garden Rail celebrated its 200th issue. Each copy is packed with layout tours, show reports, how-to features, product reviews, and inspiring photography, covering a full range of outdoor scales and gauges. On this episode of the Model Railway Show, I'm pleased to be joined from his home in Cornwall by Garden Rail's editor, Tag Gorton. Tag joined the masthead eight years ago and has witnessed many changes in the Garden Railway hobby. He's here to discuss some of those, give us some professional insight into where he thinks this interesting hobby within the hobby is headed, and let us know what's in store for the magazine he edits. The good news for readers is that far from standing still, Garden Rail and its parent company, Atlantic Publishers, are well on the way to ensuring that outdoor railway enthusiasts around the world enjoy their monthly dose of the best in garden scales for years to come. Tag, welcome to the Model Railway Show, and congratulations on 200 issues and counting. That's quite an achievement. Well, thank you very much, Trevor. In North America, we've seen many hobby magazines struggle. In fact, a number of publications have disappeared from hobby shops and newsstands over the past 10 years. But by contrast, in your editorial for the 200th issue back in April, you noted that Garden Rail's readership continues to expand. What is it about the magazine that keeps bringing people back month after month? Well, you know, I think one has to keep a finger on the pulse. I'm on a huge number of uh, e-groups, forums. I'm very involved in what is going on, particularly in this country. There have been things happening this month that I have had to get involved in because, I don't know problems with different suppliers and it's sometimes possible for me to be helpful in sorting it out but I am involved and I am very available people can telephone they can email I answer the phone at any time of the day as long as I'm awake and the other thing I think is that you've got to keep an eye on actually what is happening with publishing for instance we were one of the first to have a digital edition and this is growing rapidly particularly in places like Australia America New Zealand, because it's the cheapest way of doing it. Actually shifting the physical copies is very expensive. I am a subscriber to your digital edition. I read it on my iPad, and I, uh, I quite enjoy it. And I'm pleased that it actually reduces my subscription costs because I'm not paying for the international postage. I was going to ask if you've seen other international subscribers making that shift. Obviously, you are. Are you seeing new people take it up because you've lowered the cost to actually uh, subscribe? 
Yes, no doubt about it. Certainly overseas. But there are quite a few people in the UK that do it. I suppose in some ways it's quite a difficult subject. Garden railways, after all, is not a huge section of model railways as a hobby. And so we have to be quite sharp on costs and prices because we don't have a massive circulation. Perhaps we we ought to include uh, page three. That hasn't worked for News of the World, has it? Uh, (laughs) No, certainly it hasn't. Uh, One of the advantages, of course, is that if you have a digital subscription, you can go back quite a few years and read all all the old copies. And we hope soon to have everything right back So uh, issue number one. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. It also saves a lot of shelf space, I guess. You don't have to keep all of those old issues around and let them get moldy in your shed. Well, that's true. And I've also just treated myself to an iPad. And I do get several people have said to me that, uh, you know, they read their magazine on the iPad or on the equivalent machine. I'm particularly impressed that there's a lot of data such as phone numbers, email addresses, and websites that are hot in the digital edition so that, for instance, I can tap on a URL and immediately be taken to the website. How are your advertisers responding to this? I assume they must love that feature because they can track where the people are coming from and sort of make that quick from, from seeing the thing in the, in, the, in the magazine and saying, wow, I'd really like that, to actually getting in touch with the manufacturer immediately. Are the advertisers embracing that? Well, some are. Unfortunately, I I, I think many people are still selling in the traditional manner. But there's no doubt that the people that use the internet for selling do better than than people that don't. You can go online, you can buy instantly, you can buy direct from the advertisement. But there are still advertisers that have advertisements and they don't provide us with links in terms of provide an advertisement that we can use to link. They'll provide just a JPEG. So this is going to take a little bit of education and, I guess, a comfort level on the part of some of the advertisers to actually embrace that. You have to remember, I think, that so many people in garden railways are small suppliers. They might be people with a pension and they're making extra money by providing particular products. And some of them, uh, for instance, you'll have seen our Townsman's Round feature. Sometimes I'm practically pleading with uh, people to have some free advertising because effectively for the uh, supplier that's what it is the stuff is there for our readers that's why we put it in but from the supplier's point of view it's free advertising now one of the things i want to ask you about as well uh, in the same editorial in in the 200th issue you wrote at length about the changes that have taken place in the garden railway hobby during the lifetime of the magazine it's been on the stands now for about 18 years i guess the biggest change you felt was just the the general increase in popularity of garden railways and the number of people who are abandoning the spare room in favor of the great outdoors what's the appeal of running trains in the fresh air. Is it the social aspect of the garden railway hobby? Well, there are two things here, I think, and you must bear with me if I do it from the point of view of the United Kingdom. That's fine. One of these things is that modern houses are getting smaller. We're a small, crowded country and getting more crowded, and houses are certainly getting smaller. There isn't really the sort of room one used to get in an old vicarage. Most people don't have a lot of room, and a garden is an area where they can use to uh, conduct their hobby. That makes perfect sense, that it doesn't take that much space to build a model for the garden railway as opposed to building an entire model railway indoors. The other thing, certainly, again, in this country, is steam locomotives, live steam locomotives. 
and it doesn't seem to matter what age the people are. The, what the biggest single attraction is live steam. This is something that's increasing all the time. Yes, and you're very fortunate to have so many examples there from the smallest narrow gauge to, uh, well, you've had rebuilt uh, or built from scratch uh, standard gauge locomotives, haven't you, in recent years? Oh, yes, certainly. As modelers in the UK who normally have worked indoors, as they're being lured outside to take advantage of the extra space they have in the garden, are you seeing more indoor approaches being taken outside, such as modeling a specific prototype? No, not really. Engage one, certainly, it's always been that way. Otherwise, no, not particularly. People might use particular prototype models, but they will tend to build a railway of their own. So the railway... that in the garden. What they will do is indoor modelling outside, something that happens quite a lot in the United States, Australia and New Zealand as well. They will do scale scenery, if you like, scale buildings and structures, and be careful about their plantings. So that certainly started to change in terms of how the garden railway hobby is being practised. Yes. Before it tended to be, if you like, miniature engineering railways on sticks. Every time I read Garden Rail, I say, oh, that would be a fascinating thing to model, or I really like what that person's doing. And there's a range of scales and gauges and electric, live steam, lots of choice out in the garden. With all of that choice, your own modeling efforts are 16 millimeter narrow gauge live steam, and increasingly you're focusing on coal-fired locomotives. Why is that combination working so well for you? I don't know. There is something about the fact that here is this comparatively tiny model and it works in exactly the same way as the real thing. It smells like the real thing, it looks like the real thing, and it functions in exactly the same way. If you don't do your firing properly, you'll lose your fire and your your train will stop. We're running out of time here, but do you have any thoughts on where you see the hobby going in the next couple of years, five years? Uh, what sort of changes you, you see on the horizon or maybe things that you'd like to see happen in Garden Railway? There'll be more and more ready to run. In 16mm scale, mostly it tended to be kits or build yourself. Now, more and more, it's ready to run. And G-scalers always have had ready to run. Uh, They tend to uh, be moving over to live steam a little more since the demise, very largely, of LGB. Tag, thank you for joining us on the Model Railway Show to uh, share your thoughts today about garden railways and uh, where they're going. And congratulations again on uh, 200 issues. Let's hope for many more. Certainly. That's very kind of you. Thanks very much. Tag Gorton is editor of Garden Rail magazine from Atlantic Publishers. Garden Rail is available in paper copy or as a digital subscription for your computer or iPad. Thanks, guys. You know, I think, Trevor, that was somewhat illuminating. I have uh, picked up on my travels, uh, Atlantic Publishing's Narrow Gauge World and Narrow Gauge Modeling, and I love the magazine, but I have to confess I balk at the price over here. Yes, indeed, and one of the really interesting things about the magazine is that it is called Narrow Gauge World, and it does actually cover the world. It's everything from Australia, New Zealand to uh, South America, Europe, Eastern Europe, 
Well, and lots of UK, of course. Now, I do have to say that uh, Tag was a real hero for coming on the show because he was suffering from a terrible cold, but he said, no, he was ready to go ahead and do it. So we'd really like to give Tag a special shout out for uh, being a trooper there. And also, you'll notice that there was a bit of a squeaky chair in there. Uh, I just, I was having so much fun talking to him. I didn't even Couldn't sit still, huh? I could not, no, (laughs) no. Uh, One of the interesting things about Tag is he's really active as a Garden Rail ambassador. You will find him on... He mentions this in the interview, but you will find him on any news group that's about uh, Garden Rail. His signature block on his email always has his Skype address and his phone number. And he just, he gets involved with the manufacturers and he gets involved with the people in the hobby too. If they are having a problem with, let's say, a supplier, he's in there to say, well, what can I do to help out? Really glad we had him on the show. Check his links for other links, right? Yes, absolutely. We'll have a link to uh, Garden Rail Magazine and uh, Tag has sent us some photos. So we will have some pictures of uh, what he's been doing on our Flickr gallery. And you can find that on our website at themodelrailwayshow.com. You'll also find us on Facebook, and we'll post some of his pictures up there too. It's Jim's turn now. Uh, They say that records are made to be broken, but that's only if you don't break some coupler knuckles first. Here's Jim with his guest. Thanks, Trevor. You know, we've been having some heavy conversations here on this show about what is, after all, supposed to be a fun hobby. Sure, it's useful to know how to plan your estate and devise strategies to keep the hobby alive, and it's certainly instructive to talk about the lessons learned in losing a layout, but it's time to cleanse the palate of that heavy diet by hooking up some trains and letting them rip. In April of this year, the Wilmington, North Carolina Railroad Museum hosted an attempt to enter the Guinness Book of World Records by running the world's longest model train. On the day of that attempt, a 926-foot-long HO train comprised of 31 locomotives and more than 1,500 cars sat poised to take its place in history or pop some coupler knuckles and circuit breakers trying. Were they successful? Well, if you've followed the links on our website, you already know the answer to that question, but maybe you like surprises. Mark Koenig is the curator of the Wilmington Railroad Museum, and he's here to talk about the logistics of mounting such a record attempt. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mark. And it's a pleasure to join you, Jim. Now, I must say, I've been to your museum. It was about 10 years ago down in the, what, the Cotton District of uh, Wilmington, North Carolina? Yes, the Riverfront Downtown District. Yes, indeed. It's a great location, and I've got to get back there someday. In fact, uh, maybe even next year. Uh, So how did this uh, idea hatch over some pints of Guinness, or what? Well, it hatched as a result of some conversations we're having internal to the museum to kind of meet a couple of objectives. One of them was to get a little more visibility to our museum, which is kind of lost among its surrounding structures, and also to uh, raise some money for the museum for its programs and services and missions. Okay, so what's, what's involved in approaching the Guinness people to set up such an attempt? Well, we sifted through a few ideas. Gradually, we disposed of them, and uh, one of them that bubbled to the surface was, well, how about setting a world record? Someone had recently latched on to the Miniature Wonderland website and had talked about a world record-length train that they had operated there and caught imagination internally here and said, well, we can do that, and we can probably build a longer one. So principals began to uh, have a few conversations with the 
folks at Guinness got some guidance as to how it was defined and how it's supposed to be set up and the variety of information there, along with all the certifications uh, that was required. And we looked at it. It was a long order board, I can tell you that much, but we uh, said we can handle this. So where was the attempt held? Your own layout wouldn't be large enough for this, would it? Uh, the attempt was actually held at our recently completed convention center right here in Wilmington. They were good enough to cut us a deal on their main exhibition hall, and it was a great way to bring the facility to the community a little bit, or the community to the facility, I should say, and let folks uh, see what this fine new facility was. Now... One person couldn't put down all that track and put all those locomotives and cars on. How was the work divided here? Well, the work began being divided up last September, and some great plans were laid in terms of tapping into our engineering talent here to be able to parcel out different aspects of the larger project to different folks. So we had people involved in manufacturing track panels, somebody else doing the underlayment board strip to lay down in the convention hall, as well as starting to negotiate where we're going to get our supplies for this train, because the numbers added up quite remarkably in a brief order of time. Well, I noticed that all 31 locomotives were Bowser C628s. That suggests to me that Bowser saw a marketing opportunity here. Did they come forward, or did you approach them? We approached a couple of manufacturers. Bowser was the one who uh, actually found the best fit for us. They uh, provided their locomotives at cost to us, custom decorated for the event, which then we could turn around and sell as sponsored motive power units. And uh, they also sold us 400 custom decorated boxcars with information about the event and the Wilmington Railroad Museum that we could also sell as uh, sponsored items. And so they were a great partner for us. They also provided some replacement parts and added a page on their own website about the event and their featured role in it. And the rest of the rolling stock came from what, Railroad Club members? We tapped into our own supply of several hundred cars. We tapped into personal hobby collections, model railroads, as well as a couple hobby club collections. The big challenge here was to get everything calibrated among the rolling stock units. Uh, as you mentioned, we had 1,563 cars. That's about 3,100 couplers that have to be tested and certainly aligned with each other, so they're all grabbing at the same point and hold together under the tension of the power. I expect identical locomotives were used to prevent any uh, chance of train breaks or derailments through mismatches in speed. Did you do what the big railroads do? Did you spot this train power along the length of the train? Yes, indeed. You know, our spec at the beginning was we have to have identical locomotives. So that argued for single source supplier for us. And we brought them all down and put them on our layout, actually, did time trials, interspersed time trials, uh, just operating free and doing time trials around our layout to make sure that they were all holding speed at the right power. It gave us a good feel for how they behaved under motion, certainly. And then we began assembling large fragments of what would eventually become a larger train, all the way up to about 200 cars in a unit with, as you say, interspersed motive power. What was the track plan like? Was it a giant oval? or? Yeah, you know? they folded over figure eight, so okay. it ended up being a double oval with a flyover. And how much and juice to run a train this long? 
Oh, that was something else. We got a MRC power supply for that. And all told, once we got everything put together, our readings indicated that the whole train was pulling about 10 and a half amps. Okay, drum roll. Was your attempt to run the world's longest train successful? It was successful. Now, it took us 21 tries, Jim, but uh, we started 1 o'clock in the afternoon is when we got things underway with departure bell and a whistle and had the mayor pull the switch on it and got things running. And by quarter to four, two hours and 45 minutes later, we crossed the finish line. In between, there were numerous stops. For the most part, in fact, almost exclusively, I'd say it was separations. It was just making sure that the train held together for that long, but we had crafted a way around that obstacle as well with little coupler retainer rigs that we could string between the cars to hold them together. Well, you mentioned uh, the uh, locals and cars, especially decorated ones, were sold off as fundraisers. Uh, Any other fundraising uh, endeavors attached to this? We sold segments of track that uh, individual businesses or individuals or businesses could sponsor, and We also had 24 paid and in-kind corporate sponsors, including, I think, probably the most valuable one for the Guinness purposes, and that is an engineering and surveying firm who furnished their equipment and locators and personnel and the transit man and rod man to kind of make sure that we provided the official documentation for the length and distance traveled. How far did this train have to travel for it to be considered a record? The standing record was on the order of 690 feet, we said, well, we have to go past that, and we actually went up to 750 feet continuous travel under its own power. What would that work out to an HO about? The train, I think we stretched out at about 17 miles long in real terms. <laughs> We're blessed down here in Wilmington to have a World War II era battleship parked right across the uh, downtown area from us, and even in model length, this train was about 200 feet longer than the battleship. So it was a very interesting event to assemble and put together. It took about two and a half days to lay this all down. And some of the photo documentation that was required was furnished by the local uh, film study school at the college here. And they put together actually a documentary, which is in the final stages of editing and release. I am told that there's a trailer online uh, that you can uh, look up, but I don't have the website for that. It's one of complicated. Not to worry. We'll send the folks to the links on our website, Mark, uh, to to find all of this uh, stuff. Now you've done all this work, you're probably nervously eyeing other attempts to break your record, but that's that's what happens when you're numero uno. As of this date, Guinness has not come back to us with their official stamp of approval on this. We sent 10 packets of information to London, and actually it's one of those any day now periods when you're saying, okay, have we heard it from them yet? Have we heard from them yet? Nope, not yet. Mark, uh, in closing, just a brief plug for the uh, Wilmington Railroad Museum. We were established in 1979 by a trio of ladies who had ties to the railroad company or had worked for the Atlantic Coastline Company, which was headquartered here in Wilmington. And as headquarter activities and rail traffic diminished here, they they decided that it was a good idea not to lose that sense of history and heritage. So they put the, all the organizational work together to found a museum, and both the uh, interest in it and the collections have grown over time. So what was open only a couple of days a week back in the early 1980s is now open 320 days a year. 
and we have a whole variety of displays and exhibits about railroad life, railroads in general, and how they affected commerce and technology, slice-of-life exhibits on how railroads permeated every aspect of the traveling life, and a children's hall for the kids, and an enormous and state-of-the-art model railroad hall, and some full-scale uh, stock outside. Well, great. Well, Mark, I'm visiting friends down in Wilmington next year, so I'll make a point of dropping in on the museum and see the uh, advances you've made. Congratulations on, on yeah. quite a magnificent endeavor there. So, uh, uh, again, uh, Mark Koenig, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it, Jim, and look forward to your visit. Well, that was fun. Thanks, guys. And remember, even if you can't set a Guinness World Record, you can always set a Guinness in front of you. That's right. And if you've seen my workbench photo in our Flickr gallery, you'll see how Guinness has made me the modeler I am today. Well, enough of this craziness. Next time, my guest will be the man responsible for the National Model Railroad Association archives. If you haven't checked out this newly revamped resource, Stephen Priest will tell you why you should. And I'll be speaking with Frank Giacobbe, the co-creator of N-Scale Limited, a high-end website for N-Scalers that is also an inspiration and a resource for those who model in other scales. Until next time, I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Thanks to Chris Abbott, our technical director, our web designer, Otto Vondrack, and Dave Woodhead for the original theme music. Visit Dave's website where you can purchase his great music and check out his model railroading talent. And thanks to you for taking the time to visit us here on the Model Railway Show. Mm-hmm.